Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Alarm room 2, engine 12, rescue 12, engine 12, rescue 12. Respond out to Los Altos Park, 10140 Lomas Boulevard Northeast. Responding out to a 30 Delta 3 for an 11-year-old male, conscious and breathing. He was hit in the head with a baseball bat. He's bleeding. Caller states he is not alert at this time. 30 Delta 3 at Los Altos Park, 10140 Lomas Boulevard Northeast, engine 12, rescue 12. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the AFR podcast. Today we're going to be talking about head trauma and I have the pleasure of being joined by Captain Clint Anderson. Hey Clint, how are you doing today? Good morning, I'm doing well. How about you? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, Glad you could be on. It's nice to have uh, some different perspective on this. We've had Dr. Pruitt for quite a bit of these, but we've also had uh, Rob LaPree come on. We've had some other people and it's always good to hear um, the seven eights. You guys have so much experience and a different perspective you know you don't have the doctor level knowledge but you got a lot of street smarts that that uh can help guys out in the field oh yeah i hope so yeah um real quick before we get into the the lecture today i just wanted to ask you um about some of your previous time on the rescue so where have you been and you know sure sure uh the the majority of my time prior to making captain was spent off of central uh, I had the pleasure of driving Rescue 11 for Battalion Chief Ortiz for a couple of years there. And uh, then as a lieutenant, spent, uh, I think, five years, maybe a little more than five years at Rescue 12. Nice. Yeah, I remember looking and seeing that it seemed like you and Jason Martin were working together for quite a bit and kind of would bid to different stations together. Um, I just wanted to ask you about, you know, and you mentioned some of the other people that you were on the rescue with but when you're working together how do you have a good relationship like that where it's the kind of rescue where guys are you know bidding together uh just have just this great professional relationship how do you develop that or is it just something that comes natural uh definitely not natural and I i think we've all had those times where things were difficult, the partners seemed difficult, or maybe you did. Um, I was real fortunate in having Jason because it's a guy that would really anticipate me. uh, So we were able to bounce things off of each other and to work really well together and smoothly together. I mean, to the point where uh, we uh, purposely bid back off of Central so that we could uh, have more time in the rescue together, taking those uh, difficult calls, and whatnot. I think the the biggest driving thing I, I feel like behind uh, working and specifically on a rescue because there's only two of you is uh, communication. Just like anything else, just like we have the medication readbacks, those kinds of things uh, to avoid mistakes. <clears throat> and even when there are mistakes or lessons learned, you're able to, to communicate, to have these tailboards after, to learn from it, just like we do with our post-incident analyses and those kinds of things. So uh, that that was, in essence was uh, how Jason and I rolled at Rescue 12 was being able to communicate the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, you know, you game day the call on the way to it. Discuss you know medications, dosages, uh, indications, that sort of stuff as you're heading to the call, so that you're already preparing yourself. And uh, you know how it is; it's everything's always dynamic. But uh, then you you learn from the tougher ones as well. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing, some of the drivers, when they come through, they would ask like, Hey, how do you like to run a code or what do you like to do? So I think that's some good advice. You know, if you're the, say that you're the driver, ask the lieutenant how he likes to run it. Or if you're the lieutenant and the driver doesn't bring it up, you know, it's always best to talk about the worst case scenario. So say a code, like, how do you want to run this code or talk about things like that before actually getting to them so even if it's just uh, somebody's there on a night et you know sometimes it just takes one minute conversation of just like laying out how you like to run the scene yeah absolutely you know roles and responsibilities and we used to do that um even after a bid you have a new crew together and everyone would sit down and you'd discuss roles and responsibilities so we'd talk about fire ground stuff you know with uh with the engine personnel, and then uh, then we'd talk about you know running codes, emergency scenes, uh, where 
the uh, the rescue lieutenant is the one you're looking to for direction, and that's what we expect as seven eighths from our rescue lieutenants is to for these guys to uh, be a little less hands on to be able to stand back to see the bigger picture and to run their scene. Uh, it's just easier to manage when you're not sucked into task, just like we would for our battalion chiefs being at a strategic level uh, and not stuck, you know, working a saw trying to trying to get into a structure or what have you. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a, and the other thing you'll see is, you know, there's there's so many good rescues out there. There's many different ways to do it, but like you said, that communication is just, you, you need to be on the same page. So, you know, say two different guys, they could each be on separate rescues, both run great, but now you put them together. And if they don't get that communication um, of what's normal for them, then they, they it might be a little bit different when they when they show up to that critical call so just uh, lay it out prior to and and communicate with each other yeah absolutely and you have to do that in particular because uh, everybody has different personalities and uh, while you don't want to step on toes you do need to be able to establish who does what and when and what things are expected and that that like you said that'll yield the best results yeah all right so today we're going to get into head trauma so if it's just uh, you know a simple lack to the head, you know we're going to start with anatomy. So, just some of the different areas of the skull. Even I find it useful to be able to describe, like, say somebody has a three-inch laceration to like the left parietal area of the skull. So just knowing the different parts of the skull, you know, any, anything in the front, like the frontal area, I just call that the forehead, you know, if there's not any hair on it, but it is useful. I find like parietal, temporal, occipital, uh, the maxilla, mandible, you know, you sound a little more professional if you're able to, to use that. But if it's also, if it's not coming to you, I've also been like uh, hematoma to the back of the head, you know, I've done sure. that before, but yeah, the more descriptive, I think, uh, the better do you what do you feel about getting specific and detailed with the um, description of the anatomy or location yeah I don't I don't think uh, I don't think it hurts you're not you're not getting uh, so far down that rabbit hole that you're just trying you're one of those people trying to sound smart you know uh, but that you're able to convey to these docs what sort of injuries you've assessed and how you've addressed them. This uh, this will also give these guys a better index of suspicion. They'll know where that initial insult may have been. Like you said, could it be the occiput? Could it be the right parietal? So this is where the patient struck their head. So you know if there is subsequent injury like a coup contra coup or whatever, but at least they'll know or have a higher idea of where they might want to expect to see that bleeding when they look at their uh, their imaging, their CT scans, and the other stuff they do. Nice. So those those same. Uh Parts of the skull actually correspond to the lobes of the brain, but that's a little bit too detailed. We're not really going to get into the different lobes and their responsibilities, um, you know, whether it's personality or memory or anything. But well, we are going to touch on the brainstem because this is going to have a huge, huge role in in what our uh, vital signs of our patients are going to be. So, can you talk about the brainstem a little bit and? what it's responsible for. Yeah, so the so the brainstem, I mean, for our intents and purposes as EMS providers, you just want to be thinking that this controls the uh, the heart rate, the blood pressure and the respiratory drive, all three of which we'll talk about later when we get into Cushing's triad, which is a a very good pretty obvious indicator of uh, intracranial pressure um, or increasing intracranial pressure which will give you a higher index of suspicion for these uh, traumatic brain injuries. Knowing and understanding the, the different lobes of the brain, like you said, may not be the most important thing. As we get into our neurological exam, like uh, you and I had spoke on before, and we'll, we'll touch on it here in a bit, you'll be able to, to reflect and tell the docs in your patient care report or your turnover report uh, what's affected, you know, if they have... Uh, limbs that that are flaccid or they're posturing or any of that these sort of things may give the docs again a better idea of what's happening where in the brain yeah or like repetitive uh speech patterns you know i don't personally i don't know what that means but i know that is something that happens with head injuries so if i'm able to pass that on to the doctor they're probably going to remember the lobe that you know 
causes that problem and it'll give them some more information but um i i don't remember that personally that's 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 where i get yeah i, th- I think of the down and dirty as ems goes and uh and there again if we're if we're looking at the brainstem being affected uh again heart rate blood pressure uh the respiratory drive those are going to be things that will want us to uh probably expedite transport to the hospital and to include these in that patient care report. All right. Now let's just explain like the broad overview of a head injury and increased intracranial pressure. So what's happening with that? We we already brought up the brainstem, but just from a big picture, simple level, like what's going on? You've got a you've got an injury to the head. What's happening that's going to affect the brainstem? Uh, so the injury to the head, uh, there, there's all kinds of vasculature in the head, just like the rest of the body. We have veins, we have arteries, either of which could be affected. You have different patient populations that might manif- manifest injuries differently, and some can happen quickly, some can develop over a day or two, and we'll get into the nuts and bolts of that. Uh, but as this, as this, as these bleeds accumulate, the pressure increases inside the head. As the pressure increases on side, inside the head, sorry, it exerts pressure on the brainstem. When it does that, you have vagal nerve stimulation, which will decrease the heart rate. At the same time, this will you'll see a corresponding increase in blood pressure because the body is trying to compensate for that decrease in the heart rate. Um, because it because the brainstem also controls the respiratory drive. This is where we'll see that third part of the Cushing's triad, where you start to witness these irregular respiration patterns. Yeah, and there's there's nowhere for the the blood to go, right? Anywhere else in the body, like say it's a femur fracture or something like that, that you can bleed and your your muscles may be expanding, but in, in your skull, there's no expansion going on. So the only place for, um, you know, that increased pressure is gonna cause something to move and it's just gonna go down through that, uh, was that the foramen magnum? that little opening correct yeah the, the, the base of the skull yeah so yep. that's like really the only place for any of that swelling to to move towards and and we'll talk about herniation later but that's kind of like the broad picture of what's going on with these head injuries all right so we're going to get into some terminology but first we need to cover like the layers of the brain because that's what these different injuries are named after. So can you talk about the different layers of the brain and then we can get into some of the injuries that we're gonna have? Sure, sure, you uh, start off there with the the skull. From the skull, you get into the dura matter. After that, you move on to the arachnoid, then the pia matter and the actual brain tissue. And for us, the reasons these are pertinent, depending on where the space between these layers, that could be where where the, the blood or the bleeding is accumulating. Yeah, I think I learned in school like uh, PAD. So from the brain out, you got the PIA, arachnoid, and dura, and you think of that as like a pad or padding for the brain, like the the stuff that's in between the actual brain and the skull. So that's a little thing that I learned to remember those layers. Yeah, I'm a big fan of good acronyms to help you remember stuff. All right, so. We're gonna talk about, the first one we're gonna talk about is gonna be a epidural hematoma or epidural hemorrhage, I think. Doc has that uh, labeled that way on the slide. So what's going on with that injury? Uh, so yeah, like you'll see on the slide there, it's an injury to the temple. Uh, it's often gonna be associated with a skull fracture. The, the hallmarks you're looking at in regards to these injuries would be the patient who had an initial loss of consciousness but then they have a lucid period. So by the time EMS arrives, these folks might be talking to us just as plain faced as you and I are right now. What we'll be looking for after that would be a change in the level of responsiveness or just a loss of consciousness. If we see that, you want your index of suspicion to go through the roof in regards to, hey, I really feel like this might be an epidural bleed. Um, And again, like I said, there is never a reason to sit around on scene when you have a high index of suspicion in regards to these. And we'll, we'll hit on it several times, but these patients need surgical intervention ultimately when, when the bleeds are significant enough. Okay, so how fast is this gonna occur with the epidural? The epidural is something that develops more acutely, so you're gonna see it happen more quickly. I think the example I gave to you earlier might be the person that got the baseball bat to the head. Uh, 
or you know pick an implement whatever it is they took it to the side of the head you might have what the doc like to describe as a boggy feeling uh, and again as you're pal palpating the skull you should be able to feel what you would discern as a normal skull as you move all the way around the head the boggy is going to be almost kind of a mushiness and this is some of that fluid that's accumulated because of the break in the skull the fracture in the skull some of that fluid has escaped uh, and uh, if there's not a laceration to let that blood out, it's going to accumulate. It might look like a hematoma, but that bogginess is that squishy, mushy kind of a feeling. And these epidural hematomas, these are going to be arterial blood. So one of the reasons for the differences in the, in the time frame. So arterial bleeding is going to be more blood coming out under higher pressure. Um, so it's going to develop a little quicker. Um, than our next one. So now let's move on to a subdural hemorrhage and it's going to be the uh, different presentation. So this is going to be venous blood now and it's going to be over a longer period of time. So can you talk about a subdural hemorrhage? Sure, sure. So the subdural, <clears throat> pardon me, is a little more sneaky where the, the epidural is pretty upfront and obvious. Like you said, you have your, your mechanism as a concern. You're looking at a patient, you probably more than likely have a relatively obvious deformity. The subdural may not present like that. Um, and you'll see these a lot with some of our special populations, uh, the alcoholics, uh, the elderly in particular. These are folks that uh, could have a fall that doesn't seem like a substantial mechanism. And could have began a subdural bleed that develops and accumulates over even a couple of days, several hours to a couple of days. And then all of a sudden you see perhaps a change in mental status or some of these presentations associated with that uh, increasing uh, the ICP, uh, at which point you're, you're definitely kind of behind the eight ball. The, the reason I bring up the special populations would be that you have that 75-year-old that fell on the sidewalk, struck his head, seems to be acting appropriately. This would be the patient that you want to advocate for, uh, that while you're talking to them, they're alert, they're oriented, they may not seem like it's such a big deal. You're going to want to verbalize to them uh, to encourage them to, to take that trip to the hospital to be evaluated further. The alcoholics and the elderly in particular can and often have atrophied brain as well as atherosclerosis, if I could pronounce it. Um, and then the elderly have uh, some other factors. But um, that in particular, if you're looking at uh, an, an, a brain with atrophy, there's more room for that brain, in essence, to bounce around. So like I'd mentioned to you, the coup contra coup sort of situation, there's there's more room for injury uh, within the skull. And then if you're thinking of a uh, pre-existing comorbidity like atherosclerosis, they the vasculature in their heads are that much more prone to, uh, to injury that could result in a bleed. Um, then the other thing you're looking at, and I would think a little more specifically with the elderly, would be uh, if they're on blood thinners or any other kinds of medications that, again, could uh, increase the risk of bleeding. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also mentioned before the podcast that alcoholics are going to have almost the same risk of, you know, um, not being able to or the increased bleeding into the head, right, as well? Yeah, yeah. So, so alcoholics, I like. I think I told you I had always presumed that there was something metabolic because of their disease process that maybe messed with their ability to clot. But in particular, I, I don't think I, I wasn't able to find any any good studies on that. So I won't go down that rabbit hole. Sure. But this patient population in particular, if you think of someone who's altered because they're intoxicated, they have delayed reaction, delayed responses. So where someone like you or I right now might trip and fall, we're able to outstretch our arms or to roll to, uh, to anticipate that fall. These folks with the delayed uh, reflex could easily, you know, a fall from standing height, take the brunt of that fall, that mechanism on their face, on their head, uh, thus causing this, uh, this further injury. And to add insult to injury, if you're thinking of these special patient populations, uh, people that are intoxicated or elderly adults, uh, they both will present with an altered mental status, 
oftentimes uh, either because of dementia or because of intoxication, uh, which would kind of confound you looking for any signs and symptoms that you would associate with a head injury. So like I said, someone who's sober and younger would present a little more obvious that it's, it's hard to discern between those signs and symptoms where you may just want to err on, on the side of safety and uh, um, be more of a patient advocate for these special populations, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, once they're altered, I mean, right, first of all, they can't really refuse at that point because they're not in the right state of mind. But like you said, it is difficult uh, to know, you know, is it the head injury that's making them say weird things or is it their dementia? So. Yeah, and I'd hate to be wrong, you know? Yeah, for sure. All right, so one of the other injuries, these three all kind of go together. We got the epidural hematoma is going to be the arterial bleeding, the subdural hemorrhage, and then uh, there's also a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So these are kind of just the three that we talk about uh, when we're talking about head bleeds. Anything to say about the subarachnoid? All I remember really is they're the less, you know, least severe out of the three. Yeah, and if you look at Dr. Pruitt's slide, uh, in essence, that's that's what it says. You know, rarely requ- requires surgery. I would associate this with maybe a, a slightly m- less severe mechanism, uh, maybe motor vehicle accident, could be a could be a, a you know a football concussion type head injury, that sort of thing. These are the the patient populations, and I know we're about to go into it. But if you're looking at that index of suspicion for concussion, they're at they're dizzy, they're not acting themselves, disoriented, uh, that sort of thing. These are the patients again you want to advocate for. It uh, it never hurts to have these folks uh, to encourage them or families to to be taken into the emergency department at a minimum, so they can be observed for you know probably several hours to see uh, the doctors can get that baseline and see how this patient uh, changes for uh, for better or for worse over that time period. All right, so, you know, th- this is kind of, these are the areas that somebody can be bleeding into their head, but ultimately, you know, it's gonna have a similar effect, you know, just depending on how much blood is bleeding and how much of that intracranial pressure is developing. So let's talk about some of the vital signs that we're going to see with these patients, regardless of uh, where the bleeding occurs. So, uh, so vital signs again for uh, for our intent as EMS providers, we want to pay attention for and prevent for sorry uh, hypotension, hypoxia, and hypocapnia. So, I want to make sure that I keep their capnography levels at a certain level. I want to make sure that they're uh, so I'll just I'll just say the certain level uh, 40 to 45 if you're looking at our at our guidelines uh, for these head injury patients. <clears throat> I want to make sure that I'm not hyperventilating for them, or that if they're hyperventilating, that I'm able to help compensate for that to the best of my abilities, because I don't want to see a decreased uh, intidal value, quantitative capnography value. Uh, that's associated with vasoconstriction and that vasoconstriction is going to decrease the amount of oxygenated blood that can be delivered to this brain that's already ischemic and what we're trying to do is keep uh, the the brain cells from dying and something like that is only going to speed that up uh, the other thing is going to be hypoxia that uh, folks mentioned that in these patients with traumatic brain injuries one instance of hypoxia or hypotension can significantly increase mortality, can significantly increase the chance of these folks dying. Uh, And when they say it, it does not have to be a protracted time. This patient could have gone hypoxic and by definition of hypoxia, just to go with our guidelines is going to be less than 90% with your oxygen saturation. Um, You know, just several seconds. So we want to be able to manage that and pay good attention. Regards, also, uh, excuse me, sorry about that. Um, you brought up the importance of trending vital signs. So, you know, this developed and then uh, this person was injured. They called 911. When you get on scene, they might present one way versus as you're going along, transporting into the ambulance. Can you talk about the importance of trending vital signs and how that presentation might change and what that'll mean to the ER once they show up. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like, like we had talked about with these, uh, with these epidural hemorrhages in particular, you're, 
there's a, a distinct possibility you're going to see a change in the in the patient's uh, mentation alone as far as any sort of vital signs you're getting. So you want to get a full set of vital signs, and that'll include a neurological exam to include pupils, stuff like that. Uh, get your baseline, get your initial baseline, get in route with these patients. Like I said, there's not a reason to sit around on scene. We want to get these patients to definitive care of the hospital. And then get several sets of uh, vital signs. This is going to be able to reevaluate to see how the treatments that you're rendering are effective to see if they're effective or not. It's also going to, that trending, like you said, when you get to the ER, you're able to tell these, uh, these physicians what you saw and how they've developed. Has there been a decrease in their level of responsiveness? Were you able to maintain oxygen saturation? Did you have to work as like say an intermediate or a paramedic and giving some fluid boluses to maintain, uh, I'm sorry, to avoid that hypotension? Uh, in these patients because any one of these factors like I said is going to really increase uh, The severity of injury for these patients if we're not able to manage these okay. and these are definitely manageable for our out-of-hospital response and a head injury patient with increased intracranial pressure. What is the? classic presentation of their vital signs uh, again, so the classic presentation, like I said, with the stimulation of the vagus nerve in regards to the, to the brain stem, you're going to see a decrease in the heart rate. Uh, the body is going to trigger its own auto-regulation compensatory mechanisms. So to correspond with that decrease in heart rate, you'll see an increase in blood pressure. And then uh, again, the like I said, the third part of that with the pressure on the brain stem is going to be the irregular breathing pattern, which is indicative of the respiratory drive being affected by the pressure yeah. of the brainstem. So th this is called uh, Cushing's triad. So if you have to take a, a paramedic test out there, you know, just remember Cushing's triad. And, and these are the the vital signs that you're going to see. So it, do it doesn't, it seems kind of, it seems like if your uh, heart rate's going to go down, then maybe your blood pressure would go down, but it's going to be, it's going to have a, a low heart rate, like in the sixties with that increased blood pressure, like you said, for the, the body is trying to make sure it's perfusing the brain. And then whatever the reason, the increased in the intracranial pressure is going to be affecting the brainstem as we already talked about. And that can be abnormal respirations, whether it's a Kussmaul's respirations, they talk about like deep, heavy respirations or Shane Stokes respiration. There's a couple different uh, respiratory patterns, but it's just going to be irregular respiration. So remember that Cushing's triad, and um, that's going to be one of the um, classic findings in these increase in intracranial pressure patients. Um, to add in, to add on to that, part of your vital signs, and the doc mentions it in the slides, would be your Glasgow Coma Scale. Um, for those of you folks that seem intimidated by it, um, you know you're looking for one of what is it one of four different choices for eye opening response one of five different choices for verbal response and then six for a motor response which seems like a big deal on a uh, fairly hectic scene where you want to be able to expedite transport but do it do things efficiently um what uh captain west had had brought up here that uh <clears throat> that i had to be reminded was that on our patient care report as you open it up you get to the to the assessment the vital signs tools you're actually able to scroll down there and you can just select the appropriate response for each one of these three categories and it'll give you the the added sum score. And this will be something else that will be good to include in your serial vital signs. You can tell the docs, hey, this patient started as at, at a GCS of 15, they're now a nine. Uh, that will let those doctors know, give them a real high index of suspicion that there's something really bad going on in their brain. Yeah, and I, I used to be, uh a little bit intimidated say we're riding in with a serious trauma patient and you know that the hospital is always going to want the gcs but now with it being just on our vital signs you know you just it makes it easy there's three categories you pick the appropriate box and it and it shoots out a number for you at the bottom so you know just go through that pick it out and um, be like hey gcs is 10 or gcs is 9 and and then it's documented along the way and then if it changes um you know, you're able to document that as well. One of the things Dr. Pruitt wanted to mention was, you know, don't be so intimidated by this GCS, you know, however, whatever box you pick, you know, it can get specific, whether the person's making like using inappropriate words or incomprehensible sounds. If you're not sure which one it should be, just do your best 
take your pick and uh you know if you're off by one or two on the gcs they're going to reassess it at the hospital but it, it kind of just paints a picture for for them on on a, again trending patterns yep and i think for us just to just to um <clears throat> jump off of that i mean to an extent it'll also give us a, a good idea of how aggressively we need to control the airway because uh, again like i said oxygenation is going to be one of our biggest concerns we want to make sure that we prevent that hypoxia and part of that's going to be controlling the airway so again just another tool in the toolbox yeah and i always heard less than eight in a bait and it was awesome because it rhymed but apparently uh <laughs> eight just because it rhymes within a bait is not the magic number um did you say you were finding some research out there that actually nine is going to be uh a yeah. significant number for the GCS. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's significant um, for the docs. If they hear nine or less, they're they're going straight to that index of suspicion that this is a severe traumatic brain injury. Uh, do not take this as gospel for hey, it's nine. I'm going to go ahead and intubate. I want you guys to use your discernment, your clinical discernment when you're looking at these patients. Do I need to control this airway? How aggressively do I need to control this airway? Uh, we're we're privileged here in this municipality because any transport distance is not necessarily significant. Uh, so here again, we don't have the the capabilities uh, or direction to give rapid sequence intubation. Now, that being said, if you want to think about any sort of special situations, you could be thinking of some of, your, some of our outlying districts, maybe even 12s up by four hills, 16s, 22s, 21s, 14s. If you're out there and you have a patient where you do suspect something like this and you do understand that surgical intervention at this level one trauma center, University Hospital, is going to be this patient's best chance, don't hesitate to launch one of the helicopters. These guys will have the nurses and oftentimes a doc that's going to have, that will have the tools to be able to, to more aggressively control that airway in a situation where we won't. Um, I know we had, uh, we had a lady hiking in the foothills that was struck in the head with a boulder several years several, several years back. Uh, Captain Ryan Perry and his crew responded out of 12s, and they had, I think it was either PHI or lifeguard, land up there at the trailhead and meet them, and that's exactly what they did to control this patient's airway. Uh, she eventually made a full recovery. So these are the kind of factors that we want to think about. And again, like we talked about, game dang it, on the way to the call, if this call is this severe, is this what I want to plan for? Because you can always cancel that bird. So. Yeah. All right. So is there a difference between what we've been talking about increased intracranial pressure? Now, that's one thing. Is that the same as herniation or what are what's, what is herniation going to be? Because there, there is a difference in our treatment on how they want us to, to bag this patient and keep their end title at different levels. Correct. Correct. Um, so, yeah, the, the increasing intracranial pressure is going to be, will be the signs and symptoms that we had just mentioned. The Cushing's triad, the, like I said, the higher index of suspicion for these things. When you get to something like herniation, you're, uh, you're looking for, I guess I'd call them more obvious, but also more severe signs and symptoms. Um, these are going to be a patient presenting flaccid, uh, so completely limp, or the other end of the spectrum where they might be showing the decorticate or decerebrate posturing. Uh, we're going to be looking at pupils. So if you do see pupils that maybe initially, like we said, with our trending vital signs, they look fine. Then all of a sudden you notice that, um, that one of the pupils is blown and not reactive. Uh, again, there's pressure on that third cranial nerve and uh, again, just giving you a good indication or an idea that there might be herniation. The other one will be a, a decrease in level of responsiveness. And again, the only way to be able to, to note that will be to get that baseline set of vitals. So then when you've set that trend, you can go off of there and you've noticed. Um, now again, if you see these and these seem obvious to you, like uh, the doc wanted to reassert that you need to really have a high high degree of suspicion that, uh, that this patient's herniating, we... Uh, we're directed to do what they call transient hyperventilation. So this is gonna be us. Uh, if we've controlled that airway and we're bagging at a rate of about 10 breaths per minute, we can change that to about 14 breaths per minute. And we're gonna watch that capnography get down to about 30 to 35. I think 35 really was 
uh, would be the, the benchmark, say, that the doc had set for us. Uh, where normally we're looking at 40 to 45. We're going to, uh, to lessen that a bit to hopefully be able to, uh, to mediate that herniation to the best degree that we can pre-hospital. Yeah. Um, but again, this is going to be good information to pass on to the emergency folks right. as soon as we That's one of the, it seems like this goes back and forth, you know, with you're trying to decrease the intracranial pressure, but, you know, they used to think that if you hyperventilate, you're going to um, cause that vasoconstriction, that's going to cause decreased intracranial pressure, and that's all true, but you're also um, causing vasoconstriction and getting less blood flow to the brain, you know, so... Um, there's been some changes in management over the years. You know, mannitol was a was a drug that was considered in the past, but um, it seems like it's it's kind of back and forth. It's like if you do one thing to fix one problem, that's that's hurting you in another area. So. I I think with herniation, and that's why the doc wanted to, like I said, reassert that you really want to be pretty pretty darn sure that this is that, that this is. That this patient is herniating, and this is why I choose this this route of treatment, uh, because it is almost like that life over limb, where we're trying to decrease that herniation at the expense of of uh, potentially vasoconstricting and decreasing the oxygenated blood delivered to the brain. Um, and you said transient, so uh, so there's a time frame on correct, that. Correct. Yeah. So this is really kind of like our epi mini boluses in the cardiac arrest situation. You're gonna be you're gonna be doing this and reevaluating this every minute. So bag that patient up, and when I say bag them up, about 14 a minute, don't be going 30. Uh, everybody can be excitable on these kinds of things. If you're, the, if you're at the airway, own that airway, pay attention to the breaths per minute. And this is a lot easier now with our quantitative capnography because we can actually watch that number. Um, yeah, and I was gonna just throw an addendum on there with the, the mannitol, reading some of the studies that I did. Um, that di that does end up being definitive treatment in the either the emergency department or the ICU later, but as far as the efficacy in pre-hospital, they they weren't able to find any in the studies, and that's one of the reasons we don't do it now. But there again, we're not a rural area. Uh, there may be a lot of rural uh, systems that that do use that, which would make sense. Yeah. All right. So again, this is going to be severe head injury. You just want to hit the guidelines real quick. So we want to worry about C-spine in these patients, throw a collar on them. That's easy to do. Uh, again, no longer worried about backboarding anybody. Um, O2, of course, as we mentioned, hypoxia is going to be a big deal and preventing hypoxia. So O2 is easy enough. Anybody with altered mentation, we're going to want to sugar on. So again, we do this almost all the time, but don't forget about it on these patients. And the neuro exam you mentioned, can you talk about the neuro exam real quick? Again, just what are we hitting on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, neuro exam, uh, just like anything else, you're gonna be checking movement in the extremities. And like I said uh, earlier talking to you, you can kill two birds with, with one stone. Uh, as you're doing this, you can use that as part of your, your coma scale there so that folks can register that. But yeah, check pupillary response, see if they're equal. Um, and again, being able to be thorough in this so that you have a good enough baseline uh, to head on into the hospital. Um, the other thing, just uh, again to tag on to the uh, to the basic to the basic uh, portion of this, we do want to be able to expose these patients to check for any any other sort of bleeds, what the what the literature calls extracranial sources of hemorrhage. Um, because we're trying to prevent hypotension if this patient, say from a motor vehicle accident with significant mechanism, also has a bad pelvis fracture or a femur, they could be bleeding elsewhere. And that bleeding elsewhere affects the hemoglobin, which affects the amount of oxygen delivered ultimately to the brain. So if we can control bleeding elsewhere, um, again, like we said, they're not gonna bleed out into their head. So if they're showing signs of hypotension or signs of hemorrhagic shock, we need to be looking elsewhere. Um, the caveat to that is we also want to prevent hypothermia. So while we're exposing these patients, we need to make sure that we're keeping the environment warm. We're being able to, uh, to uh, uh, mitigate that at the same time. In regards to, uh, or to, to add on to the, to the neuro exam, the other thing that, that uh, we've added in our guidelines is to elevate this patient, uh, to elevate their head 30 degrees. And um, this is easily accomplished on our gurneys or Albuquerque ambulance. Um, 
we can do that and account for that and basically have that set reverse Trellenberg, Trendelenburg. Nice. So that'll be the the extent of the, what the basics are going to be able to do for this patient. And then moving in as we're transporting the patient in, we want to get uh, IV or IO access. And for the head injury, this is going to be different than the, the trauma shock patient who we're trying to have that permissive hypotension. We just want to keep that systolic at 90. For these head injury patients, we want to keep the systolic. The goal in our guidelines is to keep it at 110 systolic. Um, and again, that's just for perfusing the brain. Okay, so that covers the treatment of the serious head injury patient. But we all know most of the time in our department, we're not going on the serious head injury patient. We're probably going on the pretty minor uh, fall or I've been on you know dozens of kids that fell off the couch. So they're going to be way different. Let's get into some of the less severe presentations uh we go on a fall let's start off with a kid say a two-year-old falls off the couch um and you know the parents call and they're like well i just wanted them checked out sure sure and yeah we've all been there where you you know you're, you don't want to be that guy hopping into the truck and rolling your eyes because you hear the mechanism on the dispatch uh parents are concerned more than likely oftentimes first-time parents uh, like you said, the kid's fallen off the couch. There was never a loss of consciousness. The kid's acting appropriate, uh, just like they normally would. Mom and dad would like an evaluation. So you show up, you assess the kid, you've uh, found everything stable, everything looks good, probably just as good as it was prior to them falling from the couch. Um, there are probably many times where the parents may want them transported or may opt to take them to the urgent care or their primary, what have you. Uh, thereafter but uh, so with in these instances where say mom and dad decide they don't want to have the kid transported by ambulance we're going to have a refusal signed and just like with any sort of refusal we're looking for refusal criteria obviously with the kid mom and dad are making decisions for them but you want mom and dad just like any patient to be able to make an intelligent decision with the best information possible. So in giving them the best information possible, you wanna make sure that you explain any sort of, uh, what you would call, I guess, you know, head injury red flags to look for in this kid uh, for several hours thereafter, you know? So don't leave them alone. There, there was always the old adage, you know, don't, don't let someone fall asleep. I think the biggest thing is don't leave them alone. You want to be able to watch them, look for any changes in, uh, not changes in behavior. I feel like kids change in behavior every three minutes anyway. Changes in their level of responsiveness, uh, vomiting, uh, anything like this that, uh, that, might, that might, make you, uh, might make you worry. If they have any sort of, uh, like say, loss of consciousness after the fact. Um, when we're doing our assessment, Obviously, if, if we have some of the obvious things, we're going to be more of a patient advocate. We're going to be a little more, uh, a little more direct in urging to, to go to the ED. Yeah. Like the if this department. kid fell off out of a tree and not off the couch, how's that going to change? Yeah, or if the kid was standing on top of the couch, right, and took a header. As we know, like they, they use the old lawn dart reference, but they're head heavy, so they're going to fall that direction. So, you know, you're... Uh, you're you're really thinking in that direction so yeah any fall greater than five feet is is essentially what the docs in the emergency department would look for in regards to wanting to get uh get these patients observed or even get some of the imaging done that they wouldn't necessarily do on someone where they don't suspect any any other uh, uh worse head injury um, but again, these are the patients that you want to advocate for where you tell mom and dad, you know what, I think the best thing here, and this is what I would do for my child, is to take them into the emergency department. You may think they're doing nothing, but these docs and nurses are going to get their baseline and then they're going to be able to see how, how your kid does over several hours. They can be, you know, we used to call them being obst. It just means they're being observed, but you're in that clinical environment and should anything change for the worse, you're in the best possible place for someone to, to be able to intervene and help. And I think, as you already mentioned, if they're deciding to refuse transport, just making them aware of some of the warning signs or red flags, as you called them. So if they decide they want to stay with the kid, observe them in their own home, 
this is what you need to look out for in the future. And if you see any of this, you know, just go ahead and call us back or take them in yourself uh, to the ER. So kids are going to be one story. We've, we've touched on the elderly already, but say, you know, this is very common, like a 17 Bravo or 17 Alpha, where a 75 year old person falls down and, um, you know, again, they could present very minor, no loss of consciousness. Um, what's different about these elderly patients that are a little bit more concerning for us? Yeah, so we go on these patients, and again, you and I, you and I spoke uh, pretty in depth there about these subdural bleeds and how that person can present just like you and me sitting here talking across the table, and then the next day, all of a sudden, they're altered, vomiting, and uh, you know they they have been maybe they're herniating by that point. I don't know. So. Uh, Bear in mind that the age demographic 75 and older has the highest rate of hospitalization and death resulting from traumatic brain injury. And this is because of some of those uh, predisposing factors that I had mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, you're looking at a demographic here that has vision problems, slow reflexes, decreased bone density, uh, comorbids, and in that I mean any sort of medications they take. So if they are, say, hemorrhaging from a pelvic fracture, these patients are on beta blockers, so their heart is not able to compensate by becoming tachycardic in the, uh, in the hemorrhagic shock environment, or at least not as efficiently as mine or yours would. Um, in general frailty, cognitive impairment, and then uh, either uh, alcohol or, or other medication use, any one of these um, increases the severity of injury from something that seems not as bad of a mechanism, if that makes sense. These are the patients that, again, I don't want to say a red flag every time, but if you are sitting with family members, you want to make sure that you give them the best information to make that decision. So even if this patient is lucid and they're making their own decisions and they're refusing, it never hurts to be that advocate and to talk with them or talk with family and say, hey, you I would like it. I would really prefer if you'd be able to stay with her for the day. If anything changes, call us back. We'll be here in a second. We'll take them down to the hospital. Because again, these are the patients, like you said, several hours to even a couple of days later could really be um, taking a turn for the worse. Yeah. And we can also be on the other side of that where we show up to the call of this very altered patient and it's because they fell a few days ago you know and didn't go in so be suspicious of that as well if it's a you know it maybe it comes in as like a 31 delta for uh unknown what's going on with them exactly but as you get the history you figure out that this person fell a couple days ago so right sure. right there be suspicious of that yeah and i've i've had those scenes as a rescue lieutenant before where you're looking at the patient and maybe this patient's outwardly showing even those signs of uh, herniation that we're talking about, or they're showing the signs of, of uh, increasing intracranial pressure. So you decide that, you know what, I'm going to get this baseline set of vitals and we're going to get head into the hospital, code three. Um, maybe ask the engine lieutenant to hang about and get a more focused history of present illness. Um, because it does have a lot of bearing on the treatment uh, and the way the docs go when they get patient turnover, if they realize this patient took a fall two days ago, as opposed to two hours ago. Yep. All right. Well, do you have any closing thoughts, Clint? This is going to wrap up our head trauma discussion, but I think we covered a lot. Do you have any uh, closing comments? Um, I wanted to, if I could, just uh, jumping back on to special populations, okay. I just wanted to add a couple bullet points on for kids in particular. Uh, kids with head injury, uh, we want to make sure that we don't neglect C-spine. When there is spinal injury because of a fall, um, that's one of the biggest ones that kids are affected from, from uh, falls. But when there is spinal injury with kids, it tends to be in the cervical spine. So being able to control for that is something we can do in EMS. Uh, these kids succumb to hypoxia. Their, their body uh, manifests hypoxia a lot faster than in adults. They lack what the, what the doctors would call residual capacity. So the second, if they're showing uh, a decreased oxygen saturation, there's up to a minute lag from what you're seeing in your oxygen saturation to what's happening in the body. And with these kids, that again, that, desatur that desaturation as far as oxygenation goes um, is huge and it really does increase mortality. Um, and it's the same thing with these kids in hypotension. Um, I, I know I mentioned it 
to you discussing earlier that in particular infants, this would be the only demographic where they do have the potential to have hemorrhagic shock from bleeding just in the brain. Everywhere else, we want to look for that extracranial source. Just bear in mind that these kids, because they have disproportionately larger heads, infants, um, have the potential uh, to bleed enough into their head to cause, to cause that hypotension. Um, so you're really behind the eight ball with that one, and it's, and it's tough. Um, so the last one I wanted to mention, again, with kids in particular, uh, was one study that I had looked at, but something from um, my years in the pediatric emergency department is to never rule out or always consider non-accidental trauma as a source. I know we all, we all understand and hear about shaken baby, um, any other head injury that the kid could could uh, incur because of uh, of an assault suffered, you know, at the hands of a family member or whomever else. Um, but when they had looked at it with kids that presented that were under two years old in this study, that presented in the hospital with traumatic brain injury, 24% was related to non-accidental trauma. So it is not insignificant. It's a big deal. Yeah, I can imagine that uh, maybe the story is not going to add up and. Maybe the, the caregiver is going to try to say it's something minor, but the kid, you're like, that did not cause, you know, this kid to, to present this way. So I can imagine something minor is they're going to they're going to claim happened when when say if they were assaulted, then it's going to be a much more serious injury, actually. Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. And again, this is vital information to pass on to the emergency department um, and it is that if you see something, say something. And I really do, I'm a firm believer in the gut. So if you have that feeling, um, act on it. Act on making that consideration, having that due diligence. And again, this is you know this is us being a patient advocate. Yeah. This way this kid doesn't survive this brain injury just to, just to get another one later. Well, know? and we've got direct access to PD as well. You know, if you've got a, just a weird situation, you, you know, or the potential for that to turn violent, you know, we've got PD pretty much on speed dial, so we can get them rolling to any scene that we need to. Yeah. And, and again, yeah, in the emergency department, you know, they'll get their crimes against children unit mobilized super fast. So it's just a good thing to consider. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for those two, uh, two extra points on the, yes, the kids at the end and everybody out there. Thanks for listening. And, uh, thank you, Clint, for coming on. It's been great to talk to you and get your perspective on this. Yeah, I hope it helps. All right.